This evening we are in session number 11 in our series of studies in the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Living Life Backwards. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we read about the preacher's concluding remarks. We are in the second last chapter. His remarks on financial prudence and how to live life while coping with all its uncertainties. So there will be a lot of practical tips, if we were to say, that Solomon is going to give us this evening on how we should wisely invest not just our money, our time, our talents as well, in the light of the uncertainties of life. How can we make best investments of our time, talent, and treasure? So in chapter 11, the preacher is asking us this question, where do you stand to look at the things you don't know about life? What is your perspective on the things in your life that you cannot control? One knows that there are things we don't know, that we can't control certain things. But the standard advice that is often given is to look at what is certain, to look at what we do know, and doing that will help us cope with what we do not know. But the perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes is very different. It's very different. The preacher actually tells us to look at the things we know from the perspective of the things we don't know. Look at life from the perspective of that which we do not know. In other words, the uncertainties of life are meant to have a shaping influence on the certainties of life. Now, it may sound very complicated, but it is very simple as we study the passage this evening. In the first six verses of chapter 11, Solomon is giving us five secrets to a productive life. Five secrets to a productive life. I'm sure each one of us wants to live a life of productivity, but we need to have a balance in our lives. Some people concentrate so much on being productive and achieving something, that they don't really enjoy life. They have no enjoyment in life. Others are so consumed with enjoying life that they waste every opportunity that God gives them to be productive for God's kingdom. God wants our lives to be both productive as well as enjoyable. And in this chapter, these are the keys that Solomon is giving to us. Five secrets. Number one, aggressively invest your resources for the widest possible blessing. Invest your resources aggressively. And that's what we learn from verse 1. He says, cast your burden, cast your bread rather, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, at surface value, you may think this is a foolish thing, you know. If you drop a slice of bread in water, what will happen? It will sink, you know. Why is Solomon the wise man saying, cast your bread on the surface of waters, for you will find it after many days? The counsel that he is giving us is, you know, when you are looking at the background for this particular verse, you know, strategically bless as many people as possible. That's the counsel he is giving. Now, what is the background for this particular verse? The best explanation is that this is talking about overseas trading, putting your bread, your products, you know, everything onto ships to send them out to seas to trade overseas. That's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying, speaking about investment, he's speaking about a business opportunity. 
cast your bread, put all these things that you have, you know, in order to get your returns, put it on the waters and you will get it after many days. Now, you remember, the Bible speaks twice in 1 Kings chapter 9 and in 1 Kings chapter 10 that Solomon himself did this very work, you know. He put his goods, his tradable items onto ships and sent them overseas for trade. Now, today, when we have all the GPSs and tracking systems, you know, and you have your shipping address, notification coming in, it has reached the port and details like that. In those days, they didn't have any, any they didn't have anything. They didn't have any real-time updates about where the cargo was. You didn't even get any delivery notification. And you will only find that after many days, you know, maybe when you get your money in to say, okay, it has reached the port, it has reached the customer, and the trade has been done, and you have got the returns. But the preacher is saying, it is still worth it, even though it is going to take many days, but those delays will still get you returns. If on the other hand, you don't do anything and you just sit and say, I want my money coming in just like that, it's not going to work out. You have to do something proactively. Cast your bread upon the waters and you will get the return. So the principle that Solomon seems to be advancing here is that we should approach life with an investment mentality. Bread is a way to consume our financial resources and an investment is a deference of consumption. In other words, you can eat the bread and finish it up, or you can cast it upon many waters, invest it wisely so that you will get your return. You are going to get an increase by investing. So the best way to keep something is to let it go. Is that something that the Lord says? If you hold on to your life, you would lose it. But if you invest it, release it, then you will find the blessing. That's the principle that we learn from this verse. That's a promise that God gives to us. Patiently look for God to bear the fruit because it says, for you will find it after many days. He doesn't say you may find it. You know, no, no. He says you will find it. Now, the opposite of casting the bread is to hoard the bread. A lot of people do that, isn't it? You know, I don't want to give it away. I would rather hoard it. Remember, Jesus spoke in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, about the, uh, the story of this man, a rich man who had you know, a good crop. And what did he do when he get, got a good crop that year? He was a rich guy. He already has plenty. Now that day, he has a great crop. What does he do? Instead of investing it wisely, instead of giving it away, what he does is, I will break down my bonds, I will build bigger bonds, you know. He's thinking about hoarding, he's thinking about hoarding. And the Lord says, hey, you're a fool, you're not rich towards God, you are not rich towards God. And that is the important lesson that the Lord is teaching us over here. We may say, if I give, it's a risky situation, you know, but actually it is quite safe. The safe way is to keep the things we, the safe way to keep the things we treasure is to release them, to let go. Instead of saying, this is mine, you say, this is the Lord's, I give it to you. Then we find that is the multiplication that happens. We have this additional benefit also in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, 
verses 90 to 21, Jesus spoke about this principle where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if you have invested your time, talents, and energy, and money in the investment in the kingdom, then your heart is going to be there as well. But if you have invested your treasure, time, and talents only in yourself, and say, this is mine, this is mine, then your heart is only over there. Your heart is, earth, heart is earthbound rather than heavenbound. So it follows that we ought to avoid holding in any aspect of life, in any aspect of life. When we are saying, I'm holding, what we are really saying is, I'm controlling. This is mine, this is mine. You know? But the scripture teaches us, hey, no, this nothing belongs to us. It all belongs to the Lord. So Solomon is advising us to properly view our life as an investment, as an investment, an investment in another person, an investment in a future generation, an investment for eternity. So ask yourself, with your time, talents, and treasure, are you holding or are you investing? Are you more concerned for providing security for yourselves for the future or investing by faith and trusting God for the future? Are you satisfied with some very narrow use of your spiritual gifts, you know, to say, okay, I'm going to use these gifts only for this person or only for myself? Or are you thinking about a larger vision for blessing many people? So that's the first aspect. Cast your bread upon many waters. Invest things aggressively. Secondly, you know, the second principle we learn is wisely allocate your resources across different ventures. Yes, we need to invest, but this principle says, don't put all your eggs in one basket, okay? The counsel that Solomon is giving us here is strategically spread your resources in a number of key directions. Verse two tells us, divide your portion to seven or even to eight. If you notice in the scripture, seven is the number of completion, perfection. What he's saying is go beyond that. Go beyond that seven, okay? You know, now when people talk about investment portfolios, they will say that, isn't it? Don't put all your eggs into one basket, you know? Don't put all your money into FDs, or don't put all your money only into mutual funds. Don't put all your money only into stocks. Have a diversification. Have spread it out. Why? For you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Now, this is the caution that he gives. If you put all your eggs in one basket, what will happen? <laughs> if everything breaks over there, you have nothing left, okay? So, when you're thinking about our time, ask ourselves from the investment viewpoint. Each one of us has 168 hours in a week, and we must choose how we are going to allocate those hours. Where are we going to invest it? How are we going to spread it across? You know? Are we going to invest it in our family, friends, personal development, workplace, recreation, exercise? How are we going to spread that time? If you're going to put it all in one, what happens? The rest is going to suffer. For some people, work is everything. For some people, recreation is everything. For some people, you know, exercise is everything. But then it comes at the cost of another. So the scripture is saying over here, divide it, divide your time, divide yourself, if you were to say, so that everyone is going to be benefited. You know? 
So he's speaking here now about generosity in blessing many people. He's speaking here about investing your time wisely in different, different days. Let not one suffer for the other. If you notice when you're thinking about your family, friends, personal development, work, recreation, etc., all these are important, isn't it? We can't just knock out one. But if it is only one that we are focusing on, there would be a lopsided development and that will also be a problem in which areas that are important are not being looked, uh, looked after. So the scripture is saying over here, do good, spread yourself across as much as possible so that many can be benefited. Third secret that he is giving us is take reasonable risks. Don't wait for the ideal circumstance. Don't say, I will start doing this when this, this, this happens. No, no, don't wait for the ideal circumstance. Start doing it. Verse 3 and 4 tells us, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Okay. So he's saying certain obstacles you know, are inevitable. Okay. There will be problems. You know. So plan yourself for that problems. Don't wait only for situations to be perfectly well before you do something for God or for others. So, when it, when it says, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, the emphasis is expect the cause and effect relationship. If you see dark clouds, you know, if you look up at the sky and you say, it's going to rain today, isn't it? That's the understanding of the cause and effect in a relationship. So, he's saying, hey, that's a positive thing. You know, when you look at the clouds, you may say, you know, it's a good thing it's going to rain. But sometimes you may also feel, hey, it's a bad thing. You know? I have to go out today and it's going to rain. So now that's a bad thing. No, no. Look at it from the cause and effect. Dark clouds, it's going to rain. Also, on the other hand, you know, the scripture speaking here then of the first reason that we have to give generously is because it is a natural outflow of a full life. When the clouds are filled with rain, what happens? That's the dark clouds clouds are full with rain, then they empty themselves again. So that's the understanding. God blesses us so that we can bless others, not so that we can hoard. The second thing that he speaks over there is when a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He says, yes, there'll be unexpected events that would take place. There'll be unpredicted events that will take place. Like suddenly, you know, the wind knocks down the trees and is just lying there. Okay. So what he's saying here is accept those unexpected events. Expect and you know, allow those things which are not in your control, you know, not to tie you down. Keep moving on. Use your opportunities now. Once a tree is fallen, there's no other chance, you know, for the breeze to pick it up and again put it in place, isn't it? So once the tree has fallen, nothing else can be done. So he says, okay, make the best use of that situation when you still have life, when you still have the open door, when you still have the opportunity. Also, the other angle of this will be, you know, it is God who controls the fall of the tree, whether it falls to the south or to the north, you know, it is God who controls it. So, what Solomon is saying here, here is where God has placed you in your present situation, that is where 
you have to give. That is why you have to meet the needs around you. Supply the needs of those with whom you come in contact with. Bloom where you are planted. Okay. If we have not been willing to share the gospel with people immediately around us and we think about, oh, I'm going to go some strange country all around in you know, different places, you know, that's not going to happen. God is saying, do it first here. You remember the, when Jesus picked up his disciples, you know, he didn't pick up people who were doing nothing. He picked up while they were doing something. You know. Matthew was sitting at the tax collector's booth. You know. James and John, they were mending their nets. They were doing something. God is not looking for people who are just waiting for something to happen. God is saying, get moving. And as you are moving, God will open doors. It is a human tendency to see what we want to see instead of seeing what really is. So Solomon here is then teaching us, hey, look here, there will be situations, untoward incidents, you know, bright in a sky, suddenly it becomes dark, filled with rain, it rains heavily, or a tree falls suddenly in front of your car and you're not able to move somewhere further. He says, learn to accept these things that you cannot control, okay, and learn to move forward. That's the second important lesson that he's teaching us over here, where he says, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Don't let future uncertainties rob you of your present productivity. Sow when there is an opportunity. Reap when there is an opportunity. There are some people who will say, and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, but time goes by. They have never done anything for the Lord. Now, ask yourself even right now, from the time you have come to know the Lord in a personal way, what is your impact on people around you as a result of your ministry to the Lord? He who watches the wind will not sow. If you are saying, hey, this is a problem, I can't do this, I can't speak, this is guy is a tough guy to address, you will never sow. But when the Lord has opened doors, are you willing to do the reaping? The story is told of a farmer who was ragged and barefooted, who was standing on the steps of his tumble-down shack. A stranger stopped for a drink of water and just to pass the time of day, he asked, how is your cotton coming along? He said, ain't got none. Did you plant any, asked the stranger. Nope, said, was his reply. Afraid of boll weevils. Boll weevils is a beetle that feeds on cotton buds and flowers. Well, continued the stranger, how's your corn? Didn't plant any corn, he said. Afraid there wasn't going to be no rain. The visitor persevered. Well, how are your potatoes? He says, ain't got none. Scared of potato pugs. Really? What did you plant? Asked the stranger. Nothing was the calm reply. I just played safe. There are a lot of people in this world, isn't it? Who play safe? Who play safe? They don't know how to invest their time, talents, and treasures in the kingdom. And they say, I'm playing it safe. I'm looking only for myself. This is for me, me, me. They are never really thinking about others. And they, as a result, they are the losers. Remember, investing requires being proactive. In, in a, we have to sow the seeds in order to reap the harvest. So if you are distracted by amusements or idleness in a investment opportunities, 
are going to be missed. Now, we have a lot of time that God has given to each one of us, same amount of time. And we must make sure that we don't miss those opportunities that God gives to us to invest in lives around us, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our work, whether it's in our church, in our investment opportunities are all around us. But remember, distractions are also all around us. You know? And as a result, you find the people who don't achieve much at all because they are still waiting for the ideal opportunity. Don't wait for that. Make sure that you get involved. Fourthly, don't try to unscrew the inscrutable. Okay? Verse 5 tells us, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Okay? Now, there are some people who will say, you know, I want to be cautious, I want to make sure that I know all the answers, you know, and once I figure everything out, then I will do something. No, no, it will only make, keep you paralyzed because there are things that you definitely do not know. And he's giving you an example over here, okay? Do you know how a child is born? Okay, you may say, I know the physical process, but do you don't know how exactly life comes into that child? Do you know how exactly how spirit comes into that you know, little baby? Do you know that? He says, if you don't know about that, you know, how it's going to happen, why are you bothered by saying, putting all these conditions, once I know everything, then only I will start living. We accept life, isn't it? Because it is given from God. We do not say, no, no, unless I have all the reasons and answers, then and then only I will treat this child with you know, care and respect. No, we accept that child with joy because we know this is the hand of God, even though we don't understand all the intricacies of how life really came into being. <laughs> okay. So what he's saying here is, what do you know about your life and about the work of God who makes everything. Focus your attention on God who is in control, rather than on things that you do not know, and you are waiting to find answers for that before you make an investment option, as it were. You know. So leave the outcomes to God. Leave the outcomes to God. You know. If you are trying to understand all these things you know, that are happening, the uncertainties of life, the mysteries of life, as the preacher has been saying so far, then this will be just a hebel, you know, or as he said, meaningless, vanity. It will just be a little, you know, that is here and it is gone. Now, modern technology allows humans to delve into the wonders of creation. And the greater the mystery becomes how the creation designed with such intricate detail could possibly function with such amazing order. The more we understand the intricacies of the creation, you know, the more we are amazed, the more we are amazed that how could it really be? We cannot put reason to understand these things. Okay? So gaining understanding solely on the basis of our reason and experience you know, is meaningless. Okay? Only as we trust in God to know that God is the one who is in charge. He is the giver of life. And if he has given me life today, that's for a purpose. And I'll make sure that I don't fritter the time away, but make sure that that time is uh, uh, productive for God. So ask yourself, 
Where are you making excuses for failing to step out in faith and trust God and get busy in building his kingdom? You know, this is what God wants you to do. Why are you procrastinating? Why are you scared to take the risk? Jesus said, isn't it go, you know, into all the world, make disciples. He also said, all authority is given to me. And when we are in him, that authority rests upon us because of his authority upon our lives. What is preventing us from doing that? Now, you might object and say, I don't see how my investing in the kingdom will really make such an impact. You know, what could God possibly do with my little life, my gift that he has given to me? I can't see the process. I can't see the results. You know? Or when I'm witnessing, sharing Christ, I've never seen any amazing you know, conver conversions. Does it really matter? Does it really matter? Maybe those are the thoughts that are going on in your minds. And as a result, you are saying, why should I do it? Think for a moment. What if the doctor threw up his hands and said, I'm not going to use my skills to help with the delivery of this new life into this world? Why? If he says, you know, I don't fully understand how all this works. I don't know fully the facts of life. They don't make a lot of sense to me how God creates a new life. How do bones form and grow? He says, I don't know, understand all these things, so I give up. If he does that, what will happen? <laughs> the child is not going to be born by him. In the sense, he would not be able to deliver the child. But the doctor who delivers has to understand that there are certain things he doesn't understand. He may think he's an expert, but he has to acknowledge that God alone is the giver of life. So it takes faith you know, to minister. It takes faith to invest our time and treasures and talent in his kingdom and allow the results to God. We must believe that God's word, when it is invested wisely, will never return to him void. That must be the conviction that we must live by, that God's word is powerful, so invest it in the lives of others. The fifth secret that he gives us you know, for a productive life is to seize every opportunity for productive living. Verse 6 tells us, give yourself every chance for success. Don't limit yourself by laziness or procrastination. Leave the results in God's hands. Verse 6 tells us, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. So what he's saying here is in the uncertainties of life, when you never know when it will be the sowing, when it will be the reaping, make sure you keep doing it. Make sure that you keep doing it because God is the final one who gives the yield or gives the results. But what God will do, you never know. But remember, you will never reap if you never sow. You will never reap if you never sow. Oftentimes, you know the principle, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You know? But if we want to reap, there has to be the sowing. If we want our lives to be productive, there has to be the sowing. Now, it may be in ways that you do not know how the reaping is going to take place, but be faithful in the sowing. Here's this very in a interesting illustration on a, of uh, a story given by the first century church historian, Theodoret. He tells the story about the mysterious work of God in the world. And the story is about a Christian monk named Telemachus. Telemachus. 
Now, for whatever reason, suddenly one day he was present at a Roman gladiatorial battle. Now, what happens in a, in a gladiatorial battle, you know, the point is to fight until blood, blood was shed and people were de left dead in the arena. So, Christians actually never were, were there. They hated these gladiatorial games because they were actually killing life. So, we don't really know how he landed up there. But when he saw what was happening, he was so horrified by the violence and the bloodshed that he ran out into the arena. And there are different accounts of what really happened. It's unclear. But finally, he was killed in that arena. Now, this is the mysterious working of God. Here was a person who saw this violence. He did not know what to do. He said, I must do something. He got into the arena, okay, and he was killed in the process. But the mysterious working of God, the story goes on to say that, you know, the emperor Horonarius, from this point of July, January 1st, in the year 404 forward, took stock of this and then made a ban on the gladiatorial game. So they were stopped from that day forward. One man didn't know what to do, you know, but he was willing to do what he thought he had to do. And what you can do, you know, there's nobody else can do that. You have to step in. You have to step in. He did not know what was going to be the result, but because of the boldness of his stand, you find change came into being. Now, there's a difference between hope and optimism. Christians are not optimists. They are hopeful, okay? Now, what is the difference? It means that we don't think that every little thing we do is going to work out perfectly in the way that we imagine it's going to do. That's what an optimist is. An optimist is, if I put my hand into it, this is what is going to happen, and this is a good thing that's going to happen. But if you notice, the book of Ecclesiastes says, hey, we don't have any guarantee about that, isn't it? You know? But the Christians are always hopeful. We believe that the God who is working all things and making everything and bringing everything to accomplish his purpose is a God who loves us and cares for us. And he says he will make everything work together according to his purpose. Okay. An optimist says, I'm guaranteeing this is what will happen. Whereas a Christian says, I am hoping in God that God will take that little that I've offered him, five loaves and two fish, multiplied to being a blessing. So when we are willing to do that which God has called us to do, stepping out in faith, not necessarily waiting for ideal circumstances, then God is the one who does the miracle. So if you're feeling stuck today, saying, hey, life is not worth continuing. I've tried this and that and the other. I've not really been able to invest my life wisely. Stop thinking that. Think about what you can sow. Because what you can sow in the morning, what you can sow in the evening, you know, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, whatever age group you may be at, you know, at this point of time, God has definitely a plan and purpose for us. So don't wait till the perfect time when the winds have ceased and the clouds have gone away, when it's time for us to go home, that will be too late, isn't it? So this is the time that God has given to us. So let's make use of the time wisely to have a productive life.
Then in verses 7 to 10, you know, the writer now gives us four secrets to have an enjoyable life. Four secrets to have an enjoyable life so that your life here on earth you know, is filled with joy. Verse 7, the light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Appreciate every day that you are alive. Appreciate every day that you are alive. Remember, enjoyment does not come from what we have, but from our attitude of what we have. It's our ability to appreciate God and His good gifts. It's not a question on the amount of our possessions. It's a question of our attitude on the giver of those possessions to us, to appreciate that God has given me this day. Every day when you get up, make that your prayer. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this gift of another day. You could have died in your sleep, but God has given you another day. Appreciate that day, you know, and ask God, God, what do you want me to do with this day that you have given me? How can I invest in a, my in a life, in the lives of others, so that people can be benefited for your kingdom? Second important principle over here, second secret over here is, indeed, if a man should live many years, verse 8, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Second secret here is prepare for death by counting your blessings every day. That may seem odd, isn't it? Now, someone has put it across this way, you are not ready to live until you are ready to die. You are not really ready to live until you are ready to die. Death is coming. Death is coming. How many years you live, we have no guarantee. You know? you know, we would actually spend more days in the ground, in the ground than above it. Okay. God has given to us a certain number of years. Death is certain. So, the life that God has given to you, count your blessing. Don't look at what you don't have. Look at what you do have, appreciate it, and enjoy it. Verse 9, rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. You know? Third thing he's saying is, pursue your dreams. Take advantage of every season of your life, you know? but... Remember, there's a balance. Don't indulge yourself. Make use of it. Enjoy life, keeping eternity in mind. And especially he's writing this you know, to young people and obviously also to older people as well, where the philosophy is primarily eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Now, what he's saying here is, yes, there's a time for enjoyment, but the enjoyment has to be in the right manner, in the right manner. Remember, we are not getting any younger. Time is moving linear. As somebody has described the seven stages of man's life like this, seven stages. First is the spills, then it's the drills, then it is the thrills, then it is the bills, then it is the ills, then it is the pills, and then it is the wills. So if you have something to do with your life, now is the time. If you're a young person listening, you know, now is the time. Don't say, I will wait till I get older. Whatever age you are, you are in, now is the time. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5 says, Lord, remind me 
how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath, is but a breath. So he says, Lord, help us to remember. Yes, it may be in the days of our youth, you know, let's not fritter those years away. Let's not say I will do something later on. As God has given us life, let's make sure that we do it in the right way for his glory. The fourth thing, practice contentment. Practice contentment. You know, verse 10 tells us, So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. What is vexation? It is a combining of an anger and a resentment. We don't think things are fair that we are experiencing. You know, we are resenting the hand that God, uh, the hand of God in our lives. You know, we are saying, God, you know, I wanted this, but you didn't give this to me. You know, you are saying, God, you know, uh, you send this calamity my way. That's the vexation. You are angry. You are resenting God. But He's saying, no, remove that from your heart. Okay, practice contentment, practice contentment, because godliness with contentment is great gain. And that will help you, you know, to have a better physique, if you were to say, you know, a better body or a better health, you know, practicing contentment in life. A couple of uh, lessons to be learned from this particular chapter. (laughs) First of all, three things that we do not know. Three things that we do not know. Remember earlier in the in our study, we spoke about creation. You know, we don't really fully understand the, the magnitude and the magnificence of God's creation. In 2004, the Hubble Space Te- Telescope photographed a tiny sliver of space through prolonged exposures that lasted for more than 11 days. A tiny sliver which took more than 7 days to photograph, 11 days to photograph. Then astronomers counted the number of galaxies in that photograph. And in that one little subsection of the universe, there were 10,000 galaxies, each containing 100 billion stars. Who can explain how all those stars came into being? Just didn't happen by chance. It was God who did this. Now, that's why Job you know, in chapter 5 says, truly God is the one who does great things and unsearchable and marvelous are his ways. Now we look at creation and we say how mysterious, how marvelous. You know? But when you look at our own lives, you know, it is equally the same, isn't it? Why did he take something away that we were hoping to keep or give us something that we never wanted to have? Why did our prayers go unanswered and our dreams go unfulfilled? But there are also happier mysteries, including the mystery of our own salvation. What made the Son of God willing to suffer and die for our sins, bearing our guilt and shame on the cross, where he died naked and totally alone? Why did God choose us of all people to believe in Jesus and to receive life in his name? And how did the Holy Spirit enable us to believe that the Bible really is the word of God. These are all mysteries, immense mysteries. We won't fully understand and grasp, but this is a truth that God is the one who is at work. These are things we do not know how it works. There are also mysteries that surround the work of the church. 
Why does the gospel spread faster in one place than another? What is God's plan for vast nations of people that are lost in sin? Why does the suffering church seem to produce more spiritual fruit? Now, these are questions that we can ask, but we don't really know all the answers. So let's look at three things that we do not know. Number one, we do not know how to predict the future. We do not know how to predict the future. We understand that we cannot know the future as a concept, isn't it? You know? But we still think that we know it. How do we do it? We have plans for this week. We have things on our calendar for the next month, you know, where we will go out the weekend that we are going to take a break, or maybe somebody uh, coming over to visit us. We have made all those plans, you know. But have you ever come and I thought about it, that you actually do not know whether those things will ever come into place? Have you ever thought about it? We don't give it a thought. We think we are in control over the future and we make all that planning. But the future, we don't really know the certainty of it. Secondly, we do not know how to do that which only God can do. How to do that which only God can do. Now, we can get 3D, you know, digital ultrasound images of the baby in the womb. But do we really know how cells divide at just the right time? in just the right way so that this part is a toe and that part is a ear. How does life actually begin? If you notice, at the end of Job's interaction with God, Job speak, you know, God speaks to him out of a storm and asks him these questions. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory? and that you may discern the parts to its homes. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Rhetorical question. Answer is, I don't know. And God says, but I know, I know. So what God does with Job is, when he had all those questions, he says, look here, there are things you do not know, but I know, I know. So God educates Job about the unfathomable depths of divine knowledge compared to what human beings can grasp, okay? And he's saying, if you can't know what I know, how can you level charge against me based on what you do know? So remember, there are things that we just don't know. So trust God and do that which God has called you <laughs> to do. <clears throat> so living under the sun, believers are happy to take comfort in knowing that we do not know. And even in the midst of great pain, we can be content with the knowledge that God knows. Thirdly, we do not know how to guarantee success and avoid failure. Every man has that you know, dream to be successful in life. No one aims to be a, a failure, isn't it? But that is not a guarantee, isn't it? Success is never a guarantee. You know, we can put our hard work into it, you know, but at the end of it all, you may not get a job. You may not get your promotion. There are things that we just don't know about the future, that there's no guaranteed success. In our, in our. So from the standpoint of our God-informed ignorance, that okay, we don't know about the future, we can now look at life at what we do have, the things that we do have. So rather than looking at, I want to have that success, you know, and you're 
experiencing failure and you give up on life, you say, no, I do not know why this happened, but I know God is in charge, so I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep pressing on. So that's why now we move on into the three things that we do know, three things that we do know. So some people think, you know, if only God knows and, and we do not know, so what's the point, you know? If God is sovereign over the universe, including, you know, everything that will happen in my life in the future, if God is the one who's controlling everything, why do anything? I will just sit and relax. If God wants me to move from point A to point B, he will take me and put me. Why should I do anything? That's a mentality that people have. But that's not what Ecclesiastes is teaching us. Ecclesiastes is teaching us, you know, to say, hey, since you never know, since you will never reap if you never sow, so work hard for the kingdom. Work hard for the kingdom. Make sure that everything that God has given to you, time, talents, and treasure, from morning till evening, make most of your time by offering to God a full day's work. And at the end of the day, leave the results to God, knowing that He will use your work in whatever ways he sees fit. So, number one, first principle, wise living means sitting loose to life and its possessions. Sitting loose to life and its possession. In the first verse that we learned, you know, cast your bread upon the sea. Don't hold on to it, you know, divide it. Give portions, if we were to say, to the nth degree. Give portions to the nth degree. You notice again in that passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, God called that man who was hoarding a fool. He called him a fool. Okay, Why? Because he had all that and he was sitting tight on that. And the Lord said, no, sit loose, sit loose. One of the greatest mistakes we can ever make is to think about our life, our wealth, or our possessions. You know, and saying, hey, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. No, the Lord says, hey, this is not yours. This is not yours. This belongs to me. So hand it over to God and trust him. Let loose of your life. Don't hold on to your life. Be willing to give it over to God. So the preacher here is saying, you know, wise generosity, you know, is willingness to give for the sake of others. Give for the sake of others. If you notice in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, Verse 34 and 35, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The way to find it is to lose. The way to get is to give. This is the wisdom that God is giving to us even this evening. Hold out your open hands to God. Give it to God. Don't hold on. Don't hold on. I'm sure you're familiar with how they catch monkeys, you know, when they put peanuts in a, in a jar with a small opening. And once the, the monkey puts its in a hand into that you know, and holds on to it, doesn't want to let go, you find that the monkey is trapped and it is caught. God is saying, what are you holding on to in your life, even this evening? <laughs> is it you're saying, this is mine, mine? Lord says, give it up, loosen it, and see what God can do <coughs> with what you hand it over to him. Secondly, wise living means that neither success nor failure is ultimate. Now, for a lot of people, you know, 
especially as students, they say, oh, I got so much percentage, but I still didn't get admission. And especially during admission times, you'll find there are people who commit suicide because they got a grade, didn't get admission, or they didn't get a grade at all, or they failed. You know? They thought that is what life is all about, all about grades, all about success. Something happens, a failure happens, they say, this is the ultimate, this is all you know, negative now for me. No, no, no. That's not what the scripture is telling us. You know? Ask yourself, what difference would it make in your life if you believed that there were worse things than dying? What difference would it make if you really believed that it is worse to live in God's world in a way that is not really living? Ask yourself all those questions. What difference would it make to your life if you believed that there were worse things than dying? Dying without the Lord, dying having wasted your life. What difference might it uh, make if you really believe that it's worse to live in God's world in a way that is not really living? If you think this is what success is, climbing up that ladder, and you climb up to the top, you find it is empty. Your ladder has leaned onto the wrong wall. Life is a gift. Life is a gift. Don't think in terms of you know, the profit and gain. Life is God's gift to us. If you are seeking to control your life, map it out for yourself or insulate yourself from everybody around you or all the risks and all failure, then you have forgotten that you cannot control only that which God can control. Remember, you will never know the delight of doing something that can give you back a reward that you were not expecting. If we think that everything we have to control and we say, this is going to be the result. And when that result happens, you know, there's no sudden excitement. But when you have invested wisely in your life, in the life of others, and when God gives the reward, God gives the increase, that's the unexpected blessing that you receive. That is indeed a delight. Thirdly, wise living has its own reward, has its own reward. The preacher's belief is that, you know, Wise living has its reward, not in different places, but in what we do. It is not the location that matters. You know? It is not who has it, but you have that life. And God wants you to make use of that life that God has given to you. Wisely invested in the lives of others. You know? That's the key thought this evening for us. You know? Let me close with this in a rather strange in a but powerful illustration of this principle of the sowing and the reaping. The story is told of how Luke Short, this is the guy's name, was converted at the age of 103. 103. Okay. Luke Short was sitting under a hedge in Virginia when he happened to remember a sermon that he had once heard preached by the famous Puritan John Flavel. And as he recalled that sermon, Short asked God to forgive his sins right then and there through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived for three more years, and when he died, the following words were inscribed on his tombstone. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. And here's the remarkable part of the story. The sermon that Mr. Short remembered had been preached 85 years earlier in England. 
okay, not even here, in uh, Virginia, in England, nearly a century had passed between Flavel's sermon and Short's conversion. Imagine the time gap between sowing and the reaping. So, cast your bread upon the waters. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. What God will do, you never know, but you will never reap if you never sow. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells us, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me close with a couple of application questions this evening. Number one, what is your main vantage point for looking at life? Is it your own experience? Number two, how much of your life is shaped by confident predictions about the future? Number three, do you shelter yourself from fear of failure by having space only for the predictable in your life? Would you change this? Number four, when was the last time you responded to someone close to you in a way that recognized that person as God's gift to you? Number five, is it new to you that God might not be against bucket lists? And how can you do your bucket list and not lose sight of God while you do it? Number six, why does it seem foolish to us to cast our bread upon the waters? And what are the obstacles to our faith? Number seven, where am I procrastinating or making excuses for not doing what God wants me to do? Number eight, how can I more aggressively pursue my dreams and by faith take risks in the areas where God wants me to be aggressive in investing for him? And finally, number nine, do I tend to focus on pain and vexation and magnify my problems or do I practice contentment? Let's bow our heads in prayer together.